Good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome, man. Glad to hear it. Uh, so, quick announcement, then we'll get started. So, next Sunday, uh, be March 1st, during first service, we're going to have a, uh, a newcomers meeting. Um, so, there's going to be uh, several of the pastors will be in there. And if you'd like to come and just learn a little more about grace, what we believe, what we do, what we're all about, um, I'm pretty sure I'll be in there. There'll be a few more of us. So if you want to come and just hang out, it'll be from 9 until 10 o'clock, and then we'll just come back to second service. Okay, so if you want to do that, that'll be next week from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Okay, so welcome everyone to join. We'll have um, coffee and snacks, you know, sort of like always. We just get to chill in there and talk and eat them. So, uh, so yeah, we'll have those. Um, so I will be bringing the message. I don't know if you can tell. We're, uh, we're going through some things, okay? My body has decided to try to kill itself, and, um, and, and I've had a little bit of a cold, so I'm, I'm, like, I'm, on, the, I'm on the cuff of, of getting back, like getting better, um, but my voice is kind of going in and out. So you're going to notice I drink a lot more coffee than normal, which is an absurd amount, but uh, I'm going to be drinking more today to keep my, my throat uh, moist, um, and uh, we're going to try to make it through it. I have like cough drops, I have water, I have coffee, and I have scripture. I think we're going to make it, okay? All right, that's the goal. Um, so let, let's, uh, let's, I'm going to drink coffee because throat is being throat-like things. Uh, but then we're going we're gonna to pray because I think everything basked in prayer comes, uh, comes out better. Uh, and then we'll, we'll start the message. Sound good? Amen? Father God, we thank you so much for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, we thank you for what you're doing here in this place. God, I just pray that you would be with each and every person here, Lord, that they would they would come to know you, Lord, that, that today their, their, their hearts would be open, God, that they would be able to hear your word and understand your word and, and come to know who you are, that you are the God of love, the God of second chances, you are the God of hope. Father, I just pray that you'd be with me, Lord, that it would not be a single one of my words because my words are useless, Lord, but it would be every one of your words that are heard today. Father, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Okay, so... Um, if you haven't met me, uh, my name is Jeff, my wife Jessica and I, we are the youth pastors here at Grace. Um, we have now two children, I know because I have a lot less sleep than I used to have. Uh, we have a three-year-old and a three-week-old. Um, so now we have a little girl and a little boy, Jessica has her mini-me, I have my mini-me, and they like the opposite ones, so that's, I guess, how we're doing it. Um, but yeah, um, and we're just blessed to be able to be here. Grace has seriously changed our lives. I came, you'll hear a little more about my story later on, but I came to Grace at the age of 21 um, as an agnostic unbeliever, and I'm somehow up here when uh, public speaking was my biggest fear in the entire world. Like, it was so crazy, and then that's exactly what God told me to do, which is a very strange thing, but God often does what we don't expect, right? Right? So, okay, so I want to share a little bit with you about my Friday night, uh, and, and there's a reason for it. Um, but on Friday, I, this, this has kind of been built up, but I, I had the opportunity to go see someone that I never thought I would get to see live. Um, it was a man by the name of William Lane Craig. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Bill Craig. That's what, that was first service, too. Okay, let me explain. I'm, a, I'm not a normal person, okay? <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all laugh like we knew that. All right, so the rock stars in my world are not actually rock stars. They're not musicians. They are not um, 
singers, they're not comedians. I like those things, but if you see me with headphones on, I can almost guarantee I'm listening to a podcast or a sermon because those dudes are the rock stars in my world. Um, and, and I'll talk a little more about that, but, but Bill Craig, uh, Dr. Craig, is actually uh, uh, a, a, apolog a apologist. Gosh, I, always, I always want to say an apologician. Like, that's not it. He's an apologist. And no, it doesn't mean he's just excellent at apologizing. You just go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That'd be a weird conference, wouldn't it? Um, it apologist means, uh, it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense of. And so an apologist is someone who, who argues for the faith. Um, they use science and philosophy and archaeology and history and, and actual proofs to argue for the Christian faith. And, and Dr. Craig is, is one of the most brilliant men I've ever heard speak. Um, and, and he's one of the very first apologists I found when I uh, was entertaining the thoughts of Christianity. Um, and I would say that he is one of the biggest influencers to at least opening up my mind to the concept that this could all be true. Um, and so I found out he was going to be in Knoxville on Friday, and I'm like, we're going. And Jessica's like, I can't. And I'm like, I'll find somebody else. <laughs> and so, yeah, she was okay with that. I didn't say it like that. I said, can I, you mind if I take someone? You, know, you get it. Um, and so actually, like, Sam and Michael went with me. Um, we just had a little dude's day and, and went down there, and we got to see them and, and hear them speak, and it was, it was incredible. Um, but if you're, if, you're not, if you're not familiar with Dr. Craig, I just want to tell you a little bit about him, um, and then we'll, we'll get to the point of all this. Um, but I'm just going to fangirl for just a second, if that's okay. And um, so Dr. Craig, I, I think he's interesting because up until about the age 13, he was an atheist, and he was a, a pretty dark human. Um, and at the age of 13, he was, he was in class. Um, so my youth that are here, I want you to listen to this because this was crazy powerful. My youth that are in here, I want you to listen to this because this is crazy powerful, just like Wednesday nights. All right. Is that up, at the age of 13, he was in class, and he had one of these girls in front of him, and one of those girls that are just too happy, you know the ones, like, Lord, <laughs> you know the ones I'm talking about. That wasn't necessary, I don't think. Um, you know the ones that, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that are just too happy, and you're like, why are you so happy? It's raining. The, the gator's lost. Like, why are you happy? Yeah. All right, shouldn't say that here. I'll be way too happy. Um, it doesn't, not, not that frequent. But uh, he's just one of those girls that was way too happy, and, she said, and he said, just this day, he was particularly annoyed. And he said, Sandy, why are you so happy all the time? And she turns around and she says, well, Bill, it's because I know Jesus. And he goes, well, I go to church. How many of us would respond that way? <laughs> like, I've been there before. I had that conversation. You know where you're going to go when you die? I go to church. Like, right? That's, that's kind of a cop-out answer. Like, that means nothing about what you know about Jesus. Um, and he says, well, I go to church. And she says, well, Bill, that's not enough. You have to have him in your heart. And he's like, why would he do a full thing like that? And she said, well, Bill, it's because he loves you. And he said that stopped him in his tracks. Just the thought, just to entertain the thought that the God of the universe actually loves him. Because he was dark and he was lonely and he was by himself and he didn't feel loved or like he could be loved by anyone. And I would imagine he's not alone tonight. Today, whatever time it is. Um, and, and he said that he, he went home and he had a little New Testament that, you know, the Gideons had given him, and, and he opened it up, and for the first time he actually read it. And he said over the course of weeks he would read through it and he would study and he would learn more about this Jesus character until finally he decided to give his life 
to Jesus. And not only did he give his life to Jesus, he decided from that moment on, he would spend his entire life learning more about Jesus and telling everyone else the good news. And fortunately for us, Bill Craig is absolutely brilliant. He has PhD upon PhD. He has PhDs from Germany and Italy and, and all over. And, but what he's known most for is debating. He is an excellent debater. He goes up with the top minds of atheism. In fact, there's a, there's a group. They call themselves the Four Horsemen of New Atheism. Has anyone heard of them? Uh, let's say Richard Dawkins. Anyone heard of Richard Dawkins? Okay, a few of us. So... Within this group, they're the, the four horsemen of New Atheism, and they, they, they pride themselves on challenging Christians to debates about, is there a God? Is there an intelligent designer? Um, does God actually exist? Um, and they do a pretty good job at making Christians look stupid. They've also made the mistake of challenging Bill Craig to a few debates. And if you look at the list that he has on, on his record, he has defeated Sam Harris, which is one of the four horsemen. He has defeated Christopher Hitchens, which is one of the four horsemen. He's defeated Bart Ehrman. Um, he's actually Richard Dawkins is terrified to debate Bill Craig. He's refused a debate for the last 15 years. He will not debate William Lane Craig. And it's because he comes with absolute truth and absolute brilliance. And, and so I was just so excited to be able to go and see him live. And I know I'm a little bit nerdy, but this was just, this was exciting to me because whenever I came to faith, it wasn't a an instant, oh, Jesus is a real moment. It was, Jessica said we should go to church, so I did as my wife said. I know how to be a good husband. And uh, I began to entertain the thoughts of Christianity. But I also, for a little while, thought I was too smart for Christianity. That was dumb, right? I, I thought that I was too smart for Christianity, so I started to look further into it, and I started to, to look up, um, how do we know there is a God? How do we know Jesus even existed? How do we know these things? And I, and I found guys like Bill Craig. Uh, uh, William Lane Craig was one of the first guys I found, and, and he led me to um, John Lennox and, and Ravi Zacharias and Lee Strobel and, and just kind of down this path of uh, apologists. Why do I keep forgetting the word apologists? Goodness. That through this world of apologists that started to convince me that, bro, you're too smart to not believe in God. Right? You're too smart to not believe in God. Because when you start to think of create, when you start to think of the universe as a whole, we know that through science, modern science, the universe began to exist. It's not very often things just pop into existence for no apparent reason, right? Like, I would love a taco to just boop. That's magic, not reality, right? We know that when things begin to exist, it's because someone created them. It's when I have a watch on my wrist, it's not because it popped there, it's because someone actually intellectually made it and designed it and created it to do what it does, and then I placed it on my wrist, it's because I am too smart to believe in magic tricks that universes gets pulled out of hats, right? And, and it's just, they opened up my mind to, wow, there's a lot more here than just blind faith. But don't get me wrong, faith is necessary. But there's also a lot of proof and there's a lot of fact. And, and so getting to go and listen to, uh, to this, just one of the guys that, that led me to where I'm at was, was amazing. And uh, I'd love to sit up here and talk about apologetics all day, but that's not the purpose, so don't worry. Um, but what really caught me off guard is, is when um, we were at UT campus, unfortunately, um, but we were there, and uh, I'm making friends today, I can tell. All right, but we were at UT campus, and they actually have a, a student group uh, that's all about apologetics called Ratio Christi, which means uh, reason for Christ, um, and so we had Bill Craig, and then we had the local UT apologist 
um, on stage, and I, I unfortunately can't even remember her name, but she was absolutely brilliant. She was, it was insane. Um, but they were up on stage, and they got to talking about the biggest struggles they have today. And, and I thought this was really interesting, is that the biggest struggles they have today isn't atheists you know, coming to their campus. It's not kids who think they're too smart for Christianity. It, it's, not, um, you know, it's not even atheists that are just challenging them and wants to make a scene or anything like that. The biggest problem they face today is kids are apathetic. This means they just don't care. Like, there could be a God, there might be, there might not be. It doesn't really affect my day-to-day life. Like, if I'm honest, the idea of there is a God or there isn't, it really doesn't change that I've got to go to school and get these grades or I've got to go to work and pay these bills. And, and, and life keeps on going. I guess I'll worry about it when I need to. And so the biggest problem they have is, is apathy. And if I'm honest, I see that today. If I'm honest, some of us may be feeling that in here today. I know that whenever I was agnostic and, and I walked through those doors and we sat like right over in that area in the very back, I was kind of in that place. I didn't really see why God mattered. I was doing just fine on my own. Well, that's the biggest lie I ever told myself. But I realized that whenever I really think about it, whenever I was in school, like, okay, so we're, we're, in, we're in Crossville, Tennessee here, okay, so everyone is a Christian. Let's just get that out of the way. Everywhere in the, 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 the buckle of the Bible belt, everyone here is a Christian. I know, I know. Let's get that all out of the way. I ought to check that box too. I ought to answer all the questions. I heard the Easter story. I heard the Christmas story. We're good, right? If you had asked me, I would have told you I was a Christian. It wasn't until I actually became a Christian that I knew that I was agnostic, okay? So get that out of the way. If you'd asked me, I would have said, I'm a Christian, all the way, Jesus, yeah, he's my homie, let's go, right? And, um, and, and that's where I'd have been. But I, I realized, as I look back on my life, as I look back at that time, I mean, all the way up until the age of 21, I might have said I believed in God, but I didn't live like I believed in God. And, and if I'm completely honest, when people would mention God or mention something, I would immediately have a rebuttal that I'd keep in my head because I didn't want to be judged. Um, but I would, you know, say something, yeah, well, if God was real, then blah, 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 right? That, like, if God was real, this wouldn't happen. And if, if, if God was really here and he was listening, this wouldn't be going on right now. And he always had something to say. Just in my head, I kept it there. I just kept it locked away. And, and, and truthfully, I was simply apathetic. I just didn't care. I had other things to worry about, right? I, had, uh, I was in school. I had sports. Um, I, had, I had tests. Well, I didn't really worry about those. But I, I had sports. And I had friends. And I had popularity. And I had girls. I had girls. I had... Um, Right? You know, like I had other things to focus on, and God just was not exactly a, a priority at that time. And then what happens? You graduate from school, and you're like, you know, when I become an adult, I worry about God, but now I got bills. And I got bills, and I got a lot of them. And I have a job, and then I have the job I want, and then I have the job I can't have, and then I have all these other things I have to worry about and things I have to struggle with, and I don't really have time for God now either. And so I go through life being completely apathetic, and all the while saying, one day I'll do the whole God thing. One day I'll do the the Jesus thing, right? One day we'll go to church. One day we'll become a member at a church. One day we'll know Jesus better. One day we'll read the Bible. One day we'll pray. And and one day, you know, when we have time, we'll, we'll, we'll do the whole God thing. The problem with one day, one day's not guaranteed. At the age of 17, I nearly died in a car accident because of a drunk driver. I realized on that day, tomorrow's not a promise. 
Tomorrow is a maybe. Tomorrow is a if you're lucky. Tomorrow is if, if God wills it. Tomorrow is not a guarantee. You see, in that moment, I realized, and I would love to tell you that I got smart and changed, but I was 17, I didn't, okay? But I started to realize that that, that time may not be as unlimited as I thought. And, and, and we always say that, you know, we'll have time for this. When we really look at it, time is the only thing we're not guaranteed. Guess what? Money will replenish itself. Work will replenish itself. Friends will even replenish themselves. Family will replenish themselves. But every breath you take is one less breath that you have. Time will never replenish itself. So if we keep saying we're going to make time for God tomorrow, the problem is tomorrow may never come. It's like in the time of Noah. God comes to Noah and he tells him, there's going to be a flood. I need you to build a boat. I need you to do, you know, this, this, and this. Build it to XYZ measurements. There's a flood coming. Noah knows there will be an end. The judgment of God, the wrath of God will come. Guess what? That promise is not just to Noah. You and I, the judgment of God will come. The wrath of God will come. One day we will meet our end. A flood is coming. Time is not unlimited. Time is limited. This life we're living today will one day come to an end. And so we've got to stop saying, we'll do the God thing later. We've got to stop saying, I'll, I'll follow Jesus tomorrow. Because one day, time will run out. And I know I'm usually a very much more uplifting, positive person, but I feel like someone today needs to hear this. It's because someone was like me, and you were putting God off to when you had more time. Time doesn't, isn't guaranteed, though. Just like with the flood, it was inevitable. It was coming. The flood would come. Okay? We're going to be reading in Genesis 9 or Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, when we're reading about Noah and the ark and talking about how that kind of relates to our life today and what God has to say for us and, and more importantly, what it has to do with Jesus. Um, so if you have your Bible, pull it out, Genesis 6. If not, the Sky Bible has all you need, um, and the uh, mobile Bible on your phone also has it. So Genesis 6. There, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay? Pause. That's what my daughter says. When she wants me to stop doing something, pause. Pause. I can't help but realize that as I was sharing this story with my daughter, and we, we talk about the lions and the lambs and the, the giraffes and the rhinos, and we fail to mention this whole first part right here. Right, we talk about the big boat, we talk about the flood, but for some reason, we don't tell our toddlers about what the flood's going to do and how many lives are going to be lost and, and why. Well, obviously, that would be traumatic, and we shouldn't do that. But I think also because we try to forget that part. We try to think that, no, our God is loving, and our God, you know, lets the little children come to him, and he, like, puts spit in people's eyes and heals them and stuff. Like, that's what our God does. Our God, this is, this is someone else. Right? That's what we try to do because we think our God is a God of love. Our God is love. And we're right. 
Our God is love. So why in the world would a loving God bring a flood to destroy all of mankind? The exception of a handful of people. Let's really think about this. What we read here, it says in verse 12, and God saw. Now, last time we see this phrase, God saw, we see it in creation week. We see God saw that it was good, that everything he had created was good. This next time we see, not that God has you know, been absent or anything, but now we see it repeated again, God saw. And it says in verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We learn that all flesh on the earth had become violent, it had become evil, that it had become corrupt and essentially it was hell on earth. And what we see, if you can imagine this with me, that if every living person cared only for themselves and they had no rules for violence, they they cared not for the word of God or for the commands of God, and they simply did whatever they wanted in their own right, if they were completely corrupt, if they were completely changed, and if they were completely void of of consciousness, if they were completely void of, of good, then what we have is a world that is all bad. And therefore, there is none coming to God. Remember, God created us with the intention that one day we would spend eternity with him. But what we see here is a world so corrupt and so broken that no one is going home to the Father. Instead, they're spending their life here hurting each other. So the only way, the only way that God could find to uh, reboot the world, to to give mankind a chance, to give you and I, because had we been, had we been born into a pre-Noah world, we would just be as just as corrupt, just as broken, just as violent, just with the same lack of morality that they had. And therefore, all the children that were born, they had no chance because they were never being taught the word of God. They were never being taught to follow God. So we have a world that is completely broken, and what does a loving God do? He wants to give humanity a chance. And we say, God, why didn't you, you know, wait a little longer? Well, he gave them 1,600 years figured out. He said, why didn't you know, show them what they were supposed to do? It says that Enoch and Noah both walked with God, but nobody listened. It says that for 120 years, Noah preached righteousness to the people, and no one listened. It was a world that was only consumed with their own prosperity. It was a world that only cared for themselves and what they wanted, when they wanted it, and how they wanted it. It didn't matter what anyone else thought or cared for. It was a world of violence and corruption. And so God did what a loving father had to do. He had to provide discipline for the good of his children, the good of his children that are to come. And so we see that he looks down and he finds favor on Noah, and this word favor actually means grace. He finds grace in Noah, which means that he finds that Noah is is good. But he shows him grace. And so he shows him and he saves him and he he tells him, basically, that I'm going to save you and I'm going to save your family. Anytime we read about the judgment of God, we'll then see the mercy of God shortly following. So let's jump back into verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That was the judgment of God. And here's the mercy of God. So Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, the breadth is 50 cubits, and its height is 30 cubits. 
so a cubit is the uh, length from fingertip to elbow. Um, I don't know what happens if you have short arms, but that's the general length. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So right there, that is the judgment of God. The impending judgment of God. Now let's read about the the mercy of God. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And, and I think that, that verse 22 right there I think is really important because it says Noah did all that God commanded him. This suggests to me that Noah was already a man of faith. Because what God just commanded was that he would build a boat. Actually, ark is really more of just a, a, a coffin, is a closer representation. It's a box. But to build a, a box that is 450 feet long, that is massively wide, it has millions of square footage inside, and he did it in the middle of the desert prior to any rain. Um, and God said it, and I was like, all right, let's do it. He just did it. And for 120 years, he built this boat, and he preached righteousness to people that weren't listening. The people who weren't listening. You see, I think God is, God is so patient, and he is so loving, which is why he had to make this decision. It's why he had to do what he had to do. It is because he loved humans, because he loved us, because we were created in the Imago day. We were created in his image because of this. He had to bring an end to the corruption. He had to bring an end to the evil. He had to bring an end to that that creation that was causing so much distress so that you and I one day could be saved under Jesus Christ. You see, he did all this for you and for me, for the future generations. He wanted mankind to be saved. You see, but at the end of the day, there are two groups. Also, because I forgot to say it in the beginning, this message is titled, The Way, the Truth, and the Ark. Um, thought it was sort of creative, maybe corny, I don't know. But the way, the truth, and the ark. But at the end of the day, there were two groups. There were those in the ark, and there were those who aren't. There are those who are in the ark, that they were inside, they were covered, and they were saved, and there were those that were outside, and they were condemned for their sins. There are those that were inside, and there are those that were out. Now, as we kind of wrap this around, what I love about the Old Testament, if you know me, I, I just, I love Old Testament scripture. I just, I love the, the story. I love how God always uses the unexpected. He uses the underdog. Like, he goes to, to David's family, and he brings out all these big, like, soldiers of sons, and he's like, no, nah, show me the little one. And that's the one God chooses. Like, I just, I love that. God always chooses the underdog. God always chooses the unchosen. God always chooses the unqualified. Trust me, he put me up here for some dang reason. Right? God is amazing. I just love to read that and, and to see what God is doing and, and, and what, how he moves. But what I love most about Old Testament 
is that when you start to, to study, it's almost like a puzzle. You start to put the pieces together and you start to realize that the whole book, every single page, every single story, every single person in it, it's all referring to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even you jump a thousand years before Jesus is born, it's still talking about Jesus. You jump it way back and it's going to talk about how Jesus will one day die for us 700 years prior to his birth. It's all about Jesus. And as I'm reading this, I start seeing things in the ark. And I start to realize that ark is Jesus. That ark is Jesus. It may look like a boat, but it's actually Jesus. So go with me so you don't think I'm crazy. What do we have? The ark in the, in the flood took the wrath of God, that it was the, the, the embodiment, it was the, the creation that took upon itself the wrath of God that kept Noah and his family safe. We see Jesus on the cross. What does he do? He takes upon himself the wrath of God so that everyone inside of him could be made safe. That's you and me. We see in the ark that everyone inside the ark was spared. We see with Jesus, same thing. Everyone inside of Christ is spared. We see uh, that the ark was covered in pitch. Now, this is significant. It doesn't seem like much because pitch, what we think of, it's just like tar. It's like a black paste. It's, it's holding the, the boat together, right? It, but what the word here used here, the Hebrew word isn't the typical word you would use. It's the word kopar. And, and normally, that is not what the word means. It actually just means covering. Then the rest of Scripture, that is the word we use for atonement. Now, it's a fancy $5 theological word that means our sins have been covered, that we have been covered by the blood of Christ. He has atoned for our sins that they've been covered, right? So the ark, it was covered in pitch. Jesus, he covered our sins with his blood. The ark had its side opened up for the door. It actually very specifically says it had a door in its side. We see on the cross the very same thing happens to Jesus. He has a spear put into his side, and it is opened up. There was one way into the ark, and that was through the door. In John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, I am the door. You see, there is one way into heaven, and that is through Jesus, our door. There's one way into heaven through Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our door. He is our ark. He is the one that takes on himself the wrath of God so that you and I can be saved. This ark that we're reading about, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about what Jesus is going to do. One day he's going to come and he's going to take our place and he's going to be our ark and he's going to come to save us. And you see, if you break it down today, there's still only two groups. There are two groups, those in Jesus and those who aren't. And my fear is that there are loads and loads of people in hell today that said, we'll do the God thing later. My fear is that there are a lot of people in hell that were from the South and they just somehow thought they were born into Christianity. And I don't want that to be true for anyone here. And you may think you'll do the God thing later. You'll do the, the, the saving thing later. You'll follow Jesus later. You'll read the Bible later. You'll, you'll pray later. Later isn't guaranteed. Later is not a promise. There is a flood coming, and God didn't say when it's going to come. 
So what you have to do is you have to act today. You have to act while you have time because the only time you have guaranteed is the time you're in right now. You see, we have to enter into the ark because at the end of the day, you're either going to be in or you're going to be out. There's no gray zone. There's no good enough. There's either you know Jesus or you don't. There's no born into it. Don't matter if granny was a preacher, grandpa was a preacher, granny played piano, mom and dad drug me to church every weekend. It does not matter. There's either I follow Jesus or I don't. And that actually means follow Jesus, just so you know. It doesn't just mean I come on Easter and I come on Christmas and I think he's a cool dude. It means that I've made him Lord and Savior over my life. It means Lord as in master. I actually do what he says. I follow his word and I let him guide my actions. I let him guide my thoughts and I let him infect my life. Either we know Jesus or we don't. You see, it's the biggest lie I told myself back before I was a Christian, and I didn't even realize it then, but I was sitting there, I was telling myself that I didn't need God, that I was doing fine on my own, that I could handle my problems, I could handle my struggles, and I could handle my stress. I was fine. I was doing just, just fine. I didn't need any help. I was, you know, I was too manly for that. What I didn't realize is I was living my glory days in misery because the only voice that was speaking inside of my head was my own and the voice of the enemy. We're in a series right now with the youth uh, that I've titled uh, Defeating the Devil. And it's all about the attacks of Satan and how we put on the armor of God to fend off the attacks of Satan. The greatest lie the devil has ever told us, we know that the devil's a deceiver. The greatest lie he's ever told us is that he's a little red dude with a pitchfork and a tail. It's the greatest lie he's ever told because he's convinced Christians that he's not real, that he's just a cartoon. All the while, he is in the back of our minds whispering lies and doubts and insecurities over and over and over and over again. And we begin to listen to him. And when we're, we don't know Jesus, this gets even worse because when we don't know Jesus, the only voice inside of our head is the voice that wants to destroy us, the voice that wants to talk us out of it. And you'll notice as Christians, you'll start to hear the voice. Now, it's not like you're not like, whatever devil sounds like. It's usually your own voice, but it's saying something like, hey, I know you've prayed about that like six or seven times now. Don't you think God would have done something by now? Hey, I know that situation's tough, and, and, and for real, if God loved you, or if God was listening, or God was there, wouldn't he have changed something? Wow, dude, that diagnosis is rough. I, uh, you think if maybe God was listening, he would have changed that. Or maybe that voice is going, you don't need to go to church today. You know, it's beautiful outside. Hit the lake. You know, sometimes the voice of the devil doesn't sound too bad. Maybe he's like, it's a perfect day to catch that 10-pound bass. Right? Or maybe he's sitting there saying, I think she's flirting with you. Your wife will never know. Ooh. Maybe, maybe the voice of the devil is sitting there going, you, you've, you've done too much. You've worked really, really hard. You deserve this. Just take what you want. You see, the voice of the devil is always there. And, and if you don't have the voice of God in your life, 
That's all you're going to hear. And you're going to allow him to speak in and destroy your life. That's what he does. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He is the deceiver. When we see him in scripture, what's he doing? He's telling lies. He told Eve, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree. It'll make you like God. He told Jesus that if you would bow down and worship him, that he would give him all these things. He comes and he lies. And, and, and that's the voice that's in the back of our head when we're not in the ark is the voice of the devil. The voice is influencing us, and he's trying to destroy us, and he's trying to lead us away from God. Because listen, you are only a threat to him when you are close to God. If he can distance you from the truth of God, then he has you where he wants you. Don't let those voices speak to you. See, because I used to think that I had it all under control, and everyone deals with this stress, and everyone deals with this anxiety, and everybody feels lonely, and everybody feels like they're not good enough, and this is just normal. This is how I have to live my life. That is an absolute lie. That is the voice of the devil speaking to your life. He will tell you you're not good enough. He will say you've messed up too bad. He will say you've really done it this time. He'll try to convince you that God is not listening. He'll try to tell you that just because you don't feel the goosebumps means God's not really there. It means you, that, that situation, that thing you went through, that time that you raised your hand, you had salvation and you really felt it, that wasn't real. Where is God now? He's saying there's a reason the most popular songs right now are saying lyrics like, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're moving. It's because the devil's trying to convince us that if we don't feel it, then God's not there. God is always there. His word is the only truth that we can cling to. The lies of the devil are penetrating our thoughts. Our thoughts cannot be trusted. Our hearts are the most deceitful things in our body. We cannot trust it. The only thing we can trust is the truth of Scripture. Scripture like this in, in John 1.12 where it says, I am a child of God. Or in Romans 5.1 where it says, I have been justified. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. Or in Colossians 1 where it says, I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. Colossians 2.9 says, I am complete in Christ. First, or 2 Timothy 1.7 says, I've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and of power. Isaiah 54 says, no weapon formed against me. You hear that devil. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Why? Philippians 4.13. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In 1 John, it says, I am born of God and have world-overcoming faith residing inside of me because he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. Hebrews 4.14 says, I can come directly to the throne of God. And so when the enemy is putting thoughts inside of your head and he's trying to tell you that you've really done it this time, you've messed up too bad this time, God didn't answer that prayer, so he ain't even listening. You see, guys, what, I don't know if you know this, but in the midst of the storm, it's very hard to see anything other than the storm. I know that in my darkest moments, my darkest situations, I have not seen the hand of God. And it's with those moments I thought he wasn't listening. But when I made it to the other side and I look back and I see that he orchestrated the things in my life to take place the way they did so that I would make it through. That without God, I would have fallen and I would still be in the midst of the storm. Even when you don't see him, trust him. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Even when you don't feel it, you trust him. Even when you don't see him, you trust him. Faith is believing in God and trusting his word in the midst of dark situations. That's what faith is. Oh, 
You see, but so many times you and I buy into the narrative that the devil's trying to sell us is that you are too far gone or that you'll have time. I love that one. You'll have time to do it later, guys. Later's not guaranteed. If you're here today and you don't know the hope of Jesus, the only time you are guaranteed is right now. Tomorrow's not a promise. Tomorrow's a maybe if I'm lucky. But the hope of Jesus is available to you right now. And uh, I, I want to go ahead and share a story. As we close, um, the worship team can, can come on up. Uh, I read this story this week and thought it was so powerful. So uh, during World War II, there was a young man. He was 21. We know that much. We don't really know his name. So uh, for the sake of the story, I'm going to call him James. Um, James was in war, and he was critically injured. And, and so they brought him back to the, to the tents, and there was three tents there. Um, and they were triage tents, and, and they placed him in a tent. And, and what they ended up doing is that they took a uh, red ribbon, just like this one. And uh, they, they tied it around his boot. And in fact, um, all the soldiers there had a red ribbon on their boot. And they didn't know what it was for. But the doctors and the nurses knew exactly what the red ribbon meant. It meant hopeless. There was no hope. That this person... This soldier, he's not going to survive. He may not make it through the night. Your job now is to make him comfortable. Your job now is just to give him peace as he goes out. And James, he had a, he had a red ribbon. He didn't know what it meant. They didn't tell the soldiers. They didn't want to kill the morale. But the doctors and the nurses, they knew, and they, they walked on eggshells around these soldiers, and, and they did what they could to make them comfortable. The 10 over, the, the, the guys there, they had a blue ribbon, and it meant they were in rough shape, but... With, with a lot of work, they, they would likely survive. Uh, the final tent was the green tent. Those guys were just there to bandaged up, get hydrated, then head back out to war. James, he was laying there uh, with, his, with his red ribbon, and, and this nurse came up. And, and not sure why, this nurse kind of felt a connection, so she just started talking to him. And she said, hey, where are you from? And he said, he's from Indiana. And she's like, no way, me too. And they chatted for a few minutes, and they realized that they're like 20 minutes apart. In fact, they're football rivals. And they started to talk, and they had mutual friends. And, and given another situation, they would have probably been friends and would have known each other. And, and she was just a little Baptist girl, and so she said, um, well, James, do you mind if I pray with you? He said, yeah, Absolutely. And she did. She bowed down and she prayed and she prayed over him as hard as she could. And then she stood up and just in a moment of compassion said, hey, don't tell anyone I'm doing this. She removes his red ribbon and she ties a blue ribbon onto his boot and then she leaves. A few hours later, the doctors come in. They're like, what is he doing here? He's in the wrong tent. Let's get him to the blue tent. And, and so they, they take him out and they, they take him over to the blue tent and and they give him surgery, or that, you know, he has surgery. And it says it's going to be a rocky go, but he should, he should make it. And in fact, James went from hopeless to hope to fully whole in just a matter of weeks. And he was fine. But he had hope. He had hope and he had the prayer of a little Baptist girl. That's all you need. But some of us today are walking around with a red ribbon on. 
and we've just accepted the fact that it's going to be there. We just accepted the fact this is how life is, that this situation I'm facing, this hard time that I'm in, it's hopeless. I'm not going to make it through it. I'm not strong enough. It's too big for me. And we just accepted the fact that it's hopeless, and we're refusing to move on. I'm speaking to you today. We serve a God that comes down to remove the red ribbon and tell you that it's not hopeless. Hopelessness is a lie because there is always hope in Jesus. He's the God that comes and he takes your hopelessness, that he takes your pain, he takes your insecurity, he takes your imperfections, he takes your struggles, he takes your addictions, he takes the chains you're bonded in, he takes them and he breaks them and he replaces hopelessness with hope. He is the God of hope for each and every person. The devil may try to tell you lies, and he may be whispering lies into your ears right now. The only thing you can trust is the truth of God's word. He loves you. He is for you. His word says that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. That he will give you hope, and he will give you a future. We have to place our hope in him. You see, at the end of the day, we're either in Jesus or we're not. There's no in-between. There's no good enough. There is, I follow Jesus. I give him my life. He laid his life down on a cross, shed his blood to cover your sins. Are you going to accept that truth? Are you going to follow him as the Son of God, as Lord and as Savior? Because those are the two options. It's black and white. There's no in-between. It's, are you saved or are you not? Because tomorrow's not guaranteed. You can make the decision right here today without doing anything weird and just saying, God, I believe you. Jesus, I accept you. I repent of my sins, and today I follow you. Amen? Let's do that right now. Let's bow our heads. If you're here today and you still have on a red ribbon, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, of course you're in Tennessee, you know of Jesus, but you don't know him as your Savior. You don't know him as your God. That's you and you want to make that decision. You don't want to wait until tomorrow. You want to make that decision here today. I want to give you that opportunity. It's very simple. I'm going to count to three, and on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand up, and then you can put it back down, and then I just want you to repeat a prayer with me, and you're going to pray it to Jesus. It says, where two or three are gathered in his name, he's in the midst. We're going to pray it because he's sitting in front of you. And that's you, and you want to make that decision on three. One, two, three. Lift our hands up. Amen. 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 Seeing some hands, if that was you, I want you to just pray. You can put your hands back down. I want you to just pray either silently or out loud, but lift it up to Jesus. Pray it to Jesus. He is in front of you. He's right there with you. Look him in the face and say, Jesus, today I follow you. Jesus, I give you my life. Today I enter your ark. Jesus, I repent of my sins. I'm sorry for my mistakes. I will do my best to follow you. Father, today, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God, that you died on a cross so that I could be saved. It's nothing that I've done. It was wholly, fully what you did for me. Jesus, today, I trust you. I know that you died for me and you rose from the dead, and today I am saved. Amen. 
I want to I share one more thing before we just pray as a whole body. I heard someone say this week as I was studying that it was interesting that God told Noah to put the pitch on the outside and on the inside of the ark. And they weren't sure why God would say to do that. Because in this custom, you would build an ark and you would put the potar just on the outside. But now he said do it on the inside. And I think this is significant. It just hit me. It's because it was to keep things out of the ark, but it was also to keep things inside the ark. When you are saved, those of you that raised your hand and gave your life to Jesus, you are now in the hand of God. And nothing can take you back outside of that. Nothing can pull you away. The grips of the devil are not strong enough to pry you out of the hand of Jesus. The, the, the problems and the circumstances of this world, they are not big enough to overcome your God. You are inside of his grace. You are inside of his salvation. Today, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Today, you are saved. And no other day will be different and no one can take it away. Amen? Let's just pray as a body, Father. We thank you so much for this day, so much for everything you do for us and you do through us. God, I pray that there be anyone here today, God, they're not in your ark. They're not following Jesus. They don't know your love. They don't know your mercy, Lord. I just pray that they would open their hearts and open their ears to you today. Father, that they would listen to you and they would listen for you, God, and they would surrender their lives to you. I pray that if there be anyone in here today they're struggling and they're facing they're facing a mountain of doubt, a mountain of sin, of temptation, of addiction. Father, I pray that you would give them the strength and the confidence that comes with your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would be with them, that you would lead them. Father, that you would guide them. I pray that you would be with each and every person in here today, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.